Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to the fifth episode of the Talking Sira podcast um, Apologies, it's been a few weeks actually since we've had our last episode uh, but you'll notice that we've got a lot of content out there there's been some uh, pertinent issues that we really wanted to discuss and touch on uh, so for example the Turkish operation that's occurring as we speak in, in northern Syria um, so check out that podcast if you have time. But we do want to carry on with the Sira. It's very important. It's very, um, especially in this day and age where we, we need to understand and learn about the Sira. So today we want to speak about the actual da'wah of the Prophet wasallam. So how he went about and took Islam, this new religion or deen that had been revealed to him by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the cave, how he now uh, needs to take it out to society and who who he should target, target first. So we'll speak a little bit about uh, today about um, the stages of the Prophet Wasallam's mission um, in, in establishing Islam, in spreading Islam. Uh, but let's just recap quickly in terms of what we spoke about yesterday, rather what we spoke about in the previous episode. So um, we spoke about the first ayat to be revealed, um, starting with the actual first word, which was Iqra. Uh, which means to read or recite and uh, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was really highlighting the importance of knowledge highlighting the importance of education and making sure that the Muslims were aware and uh, you know knowledgeable um, and even the Prophet although he was being um, you know re- he was receiving revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, he had to take this knowledge and take it to the people, take it to mankind at large. Um, we also spoke about how Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, when he came to his wife Khadija, she took him to Warqa ibn Nawfal, and Warqa ibn Nawfal was a learned man. He he knew about the scriptures um, of the past, and he knew about this angel, this the the angel Jibril that had come to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and really surprised the messenger by telling him that the people will reject him. The people will drive him out. His own people. And this shocked the Messenger وسلم, because he would never ever have imagined that such a great thing could happen. And um, the, the, you know, Waraka ibn Nawfal turned out to be true. What he said turned out to be true. He, you know, the people did eventually reject him and drive him out because of this me- message. Because this message was um, at odds with the current world order, with the current status quo. And that is why they rejected the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So Waraka ibn Nafal was really warning the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of what was to come. And the final thing we spoke about was the early ayat that came after the first ayat to be revealed, which was around how Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala was saying that now this knowledge should be followed by action. That you cannot just sit on knowledge. You need to continue and go out towards society. Arise and warn. Kumfa andir. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Messenger وسلم, as, as well as us, as well as the Muslims at large, that you should have knowledge, absolutely, but follow up with action, follow up with the right action. And, and the final point was around glorifying Allah, making sure that the action that we do undertake, the knowledge that we do seek, is purely for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to glorify Allah at night, make sure we pray, make sure we know why we are doing this, why we are here, what our purpose is. So we covered this in the last episode, and it really brings us on to uh, what we want to discuss today. And that is, how did the Messenger 
go about this mission? What was the beginning of uh, his, this mission of his? How did that method of bringing about Islam into the realm of life, how did that start? And how can we learn from it, understand it, and practically apply it in our lives today? So, subhanAllah, it's um, something that I want to bring back from episode one. So if we take our minds back to episode one, where we spoke about some of the real important reasons to study and understand and learn about the seerah. One of the most important ones we spoke about was the fact that the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, isn't a mere story. It's not something that we just do to uh, gain entertainment and you know for the sake of it as a story. It's actually very important because it shows us the methodological steps of implementing Islam. That how do we go about understanding what the Messenger did every single step in detail so that we can follow it and emulate that path, emulate that method in our lives today to bring about Islam. So this is why it's important to bring it back today to, to this lesson, to this uh, episode that the Prophet now was showing and is, is you know in this first stage showing what what is that first initial step that we must take. So the, the, the reality is that when it comes to implementing Islam, you could argue that there may be multiple different ways people are doing their own thing and there's lots of different methods out there. Everyone has their own interpretation, whether it be kind of working through the democratic system, uh, the secular democratic system um, that we find many, many political parties that they do today, wanting Islam in a loose sense, but working through the current system. That might be one method. The other method that we find, a predominant one, is you know forcing Islam, bringing Islam violently. So through military action, through um, militias uh, that we find with like the, the groups like Daesh and ISIS, groups like this. Um, and the fact and reality is that these methods, these other alternative methods that are not from the Sunnah, not from the Sira, will not achieve Islam, will not bring about Islam in the way we want Islam to be brought in its pure sense. The only single method and methodological steps that we can follow to bring about Islam in the realm of life to be implemented in a comprehensive manner is the method of the Messenger وسلم, making it essential for us to study, understand and learn how we can practically implement these steps in our lives today. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, as we all know, لَكَدْ كَانَ فِي رُسُولُ لَأُسْوَةٌ that in the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have the best of examples. And you know, this isn't just like the best example, and there's many other examples. You know, this is the only exa- example that we can follow today. Uswatun Hasana, that follow him in everything. In every single obligation that we do, we must follow the Sunnah, we must follow uh, the method of the Messenger. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says. That and whatever the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you, take and whatever he has forbidden you, refrain from and fear Allah. Indeed, Allah is severe in penalty. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that whatever the Messenger has brought to you, take it. And the vice versa applies to that, that whatever he hasn't brought, so things that he hasn't been suggested in the Sunnah or the Hadith or, or the Seerah, we have to reject. So, you know, like I spoke about, the democratic system, the secular system, 
the the violent way or the, the you know the physical military uh, way about bringing authority and, and and bringing about Islam. All of these things are not from Islam. Muhammad never bought this to us, so we cannot follow it. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has directly given us an order that whatever the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam bought you, take, and whatever he has forbidden, refrain from, and fear Allah because He is the most severe in penalty. So what are the stages of the messenger's mission? And if we look at the seerah and the books of seerah, um, most books, if not all books, speak about these three stages um, that the mission of the messenger وسلم, can be broken down into. And that is first to start off with, which we will touch upon a bit more today, is the private stage or the, 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 the initial yeah, the private stage is, is the way most people call it. Some call it the secret stage. However, this is incorrect translation, incorrect understanding of the first phase. But we will we'll speak about it a bit further. How the Messenger started off by calling his close family, his close friends to Islam, those he could trust, uh, called them to Islam first. And he established this core group of Sahaba to really embed the fundamental Islamic aspects within them, the aqidah, the, the knowledge of you know, the, the, the heaven and hell, and belief in the angels, but the, the, the actual fundamentals of Islam that we will touch upon again today, uh, as well as the next episode probably. The second phase, the second stage in uh, the, the, the Prophet Sira and his mission is the open call. And this uh, was essentially when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after three years, had now ordered the Messenger وسلم, to openly invite people, openly invite society with his core group, take this core group out to society and collectively call people to Islam. Not as individuals, but as a collective unit, um, proclaim and give da'wah on a, on a societal level. And this lasted around 10 years. And the final third phase in the, 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 Allah's, the, the Messengers of Allah's mission was the stage of ruling. And that occurred when the Messenger وسلم, went to Medina and was given that support, um, was given that allegiance from the Ansar, the, 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 those who were the supporters, as, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described them. They gave him authority and made him a head of state in Medina. And that is what we call the stage of ruling. And that is how the Messenger's mission, his seerah essentially, is split into these three distinct stages. And... One of the really important things when we study these stages in the, the life of the Prophet Sallallahu's uh, seerah and his, his mission is that what are the you know what are the detailed steps within these stages and also what are the objectives? So in order to move from the first stage to the second stage to the third stage, what are those tangible objectives that we need to achieve in order to move to the next phase? And not just coming, you know, making this up, but how can we observe Observe from the seerah, observe from the life of the Prophet ﷺ what those tangible objectives are. Um, to really give you an example uh, of something similar that we can kind of relate it back to this is that when it comes to our salah, when we go to pray, you know, there are certain steps that we have to take to pray. And there's certain um, steps even before the salah that we have to do in order to be able to perform salah itself. So wudu, for example, the, the fact that we need to be in a purified state. Um, all of these steps are a requirement in order to even perform Salah in the first place. And when it comes to Salah itself, obviously we know there's some difference of opinion, but by and large there are um, some fundamental steps that we need to take in that specific order for that Salah to be accepted. 
So, you know, if you were to pray Salah and you start and you all of a sudden realize that, that you don't have wudu, you just, it just comes back to your mind that actually I broke my wudu, that your Salah, you have to stop. You stop and you go and go back to that first step in order to make sure that you have your wudu and go back to your Salah and perform that deed, that, that, that action, that obligation that we have to perform. This analogy can be taken to any obligation in Islam, that when it comes to fulfilling the obligation, what order are we taking those steps? Are we following the uh, method of the Messenger in the best of our ability, the, 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 the correct interpretation of it, uh, in order for it to be uh, accepted from us and also in order for it to be an Islamic action? You know, we cannot just start mixing things up and, you know, taking shortcuts um, just because we're in a rush. No, we must, it doesn't matter how long it may take, we must follow the correct method in order to bring about Islam and fulfill any obligation uh, as we have with, with Salah, for example. Another thing to highlight in discussing these stages or the mission of the Messenger is that what was the hikmah in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, ensuring or making the Messenger وسلم, go through these steps. That weren't easy. They were arduous steps. It came with a lot of challenge. It came with rejection. It came with physical and emotional hurt to the Messenger وسلم, You know, it wasn't easy. But why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what, what could be the wisdom, the hikmah in Allah make, you know, making the Messenger وسلم, and the Sahaba, the early Sahaba, go through these steps? And meant you know, Allah alam what, what it may be, but you know, we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't just bestow a miracle on the Messenger وسلم, as he had done with previous prophets. For the victory of the Messenger, our Messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala required him to go through these steps. Like you know, unlike any other prophet, um, where we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know granted miracles in order to save, for example, Musa alayhi salam from Firaun. Yeah, they did have to take action, don't get me wrong, but there was some sort of, um, you know, support from Allah through a karama, a miracle uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But with the, the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa all these steps are within the capability of humans. And, and they're not miracles. And, you know, they follow the same rules that we have today. So there's a couple of reasons I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala... Um, you know, we gave the, the, the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made sure that the Messenger went through these steps. And the first thing is that in Allah's ultimate knowledge, with Allah being the all-knowing, Allah knew that there will come a time where the people, the Muslims, would not have Islam. Islam would have been removed from the, the realm of life and, and Islam would not be implemented as we have today. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowing this, wanted to make sure that we were able to follow something. We were able to follow the, the steps of the Messenger even though he isn't amongst us today, that we can follow him so that we can bring about Islam again today. And gain that reward. As, as the reward that the Sahaba have, we know that they were the first to implement Islam and they have a great status in the eyes of Allah. But Allah, SubhanAllah, we have the same opportunity today. Because we don't have Islam and it's upon us to really take that mantle and, and follow the Sahaba, follow the Messenger in doing that. The second reason I think, and as I've said, that this methodology of the Messenger these steps and stages that the Messenger went through, these are in the capability of man. It's in our own capability to do it. So we cannot make this excuse that 
you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, gave a miracle to the messenger and that's how he gained uh, victory and authority and prominence. Because that was not the case. You know, the, the, the reality is if we go through the messenger's mission, um, we can see that there were steps that we can follow today. We can definitely learn from and take it as a rule and be able to apply it to our reality today in order to bring about Islam. It's practical. And that, there are a couple of reasons, I think, why Allah SWT made, made the Messenger Sallam go through these steps. Even though they were arduous, you know, very difficult, came with a lot of challenge, a lot of rejection. All of these reasons that made it very difficult to the Messenger Sallam and the Sahaba. But it made sure that we can follow it today. And that's why it's really important that we don't become defeatist. We don't become um, very you know, pessimistic and think that we need to wait for the victory of Allah. We need to, yes, victory comes from, from Allah but only after we take the required steps. And, you know, subhanAllah, there is this argument out there, this kind of very defeatist argument that, you know, we're, in, we're near the end of times, uh, things are getting worse and people are getting worse. So we need to wait for the Mahdi. We need to wait for the saviour of ours to come and save us. And subhanAllah, many reasons that I could go into, and, you know, we actually have a video on this, so it's worth looking up on our Votu channel. But just really quickly, you know, this, first and foremost, these hadith about the Mahdi, we, they were happening, they, they, they were said at the time of the Sahaba. The Messenger of said it to them. But this didn't stop them from taking the required action. They didn't become defeatist and start think, thinking about, oh, we need to wait for Mahdi and time is near and the end of time is near. They didn't think like this and nor should we. And this is very... Um, a very kind of dangerous path to follow and and it's an incorrect path to follow an incorrect understanding of these hadith yes it's a warning to us but it isn't a reason to become lethargic to become lazy and wait for some savior that Allah is going to just you know bestow upon us from the earth no we need to take the required action as the messenger sallam did and his close sahaba did as we will find out from the seerah so what is the importance of you know i, I would argue that even today, it's probably even more important to understand and study the seerah and understand these steps, these method methodological steps that um, we, we find that the Messiah went through. Um, and a couple of reasons, but and I may, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't important back then to, for the Sahaba to understand this, but there's some different reasons that we can apply to ourselves. And the first thing is that, you know, with the Sahaba, they had the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with, with them. So, yes, it was difficult for them and they needed to follow the right action and the right course of action. But the, the reality is and the truth is that they had the Messenger to kind of guide them physically right in front of them. So if they were to go through uh, the wrong path or you know, start doing some actions that are not from Islam, the Messenger was there to bring them back on course and show them the way, and that he was their leader. We today don't have this, obviously. We don't have the Messenger with us. So we don't have the benefit of the Messenger showing us and guiding us on that right path. So it's more important that we go to the sources that we do have, because we do have the seerah, we do have the hadith, we do have the sunnah. So we need to go to these sources and understand it with even much, you know, more focus, more detail, so that we can understand what are these steps that the Sahaba took with the Messenger, with them, that we can now emulate in our lives today.
that's the first thing I think why it's really important for us to understand these stages and understand the steps and the methodological steps that they took. The second reason is that look at our situation. You know, our situation isn't getting any better. SubhanAllah, you could argue it's getting worse. The Ummah is in dire need of change. You know, every single Muslim country that we can think of today, any Muslim land, you know, majority are in chaos. They're, they're struck by war, destruction, um, physically, you know, in terms of military action that has been, uh, you know, they've been dealt with by the enemies of Allah. And not just that, even the ideological attack on Islam. So that's why, again, it's really important that if we were going to change the situation, change it for the better, remove this plight, remove this harm that is, you know, the, the ummah is witnessing today, we need to be able to understand how to do that. And the only way to understand how to do that is to go back to the sources of Islam, go back to the, the sunnah, the seerah. And the final point, like I'm saying that, there's also an ideological attack that's taken place. There's a force, an opposing force, against the Sunnah, against the understanding of the Seerah. You know, they're spending millions to, you know, ensure that the Sunnah is changed, either by making it very um, ritualistic and making it a mere religion, um, and it's only about kind of the Sunnah Salah or what we can wear, our ahlak. You know, they're focusing on these aspects. And anything to do with changing our situation, changing our um, the, the fact that we we want authority and our status, all of this is being changed. Whether it is through direct action in terms of what the teaching was, or physically by removing these aspects from the literature, we know this is happening in Saudi Arabia. This is happening today. They're removing all these aspects because that's a threat to the current world order, and. You know, we need to be able to counter this. We need to be able to understand how, you know, when this is happening, how do we stand up for Islam, have that confidence in Islam um, to be able to counter uh, this threat. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, as we know, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِقَوْمِ حَتَّى يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not change the condition of a community, of an ummah, of a people. Until they change what is within themselves. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that if you want to change, if you want to change your situation, if you want to remove this plight from the ummah, from the society at large, this community, then we must change what is within ourselves. We must start to understand Islam properly. We must not take it for granted and not get um, defeat, you know, have this defeatist method, uh, mentality. Have that confidence to learn about Islam and implement it uh, as it should be implemented today. You know, the Prophet ﷺ show, showed us directly how to do this and it would be a crying shame that the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba, they gave all of this, they gave their lives, they put their lives on the line to establish Islam, to make sure that we today are Muslim and we can benefit from Islam today. They did all of this, how, you know, it would be a shame if we were to kind of forget it and, and, and start moving away from Islam, even though they sacrificed everything in order for us to have Islam and for, in order for us to save ourselves, ourselves from Jahannam, the hellfire and attain Jannah inshallah. So let's speak a bit more about this first stage. The first stage, as we said, there were three stages, the private stage, the open call and the ruling. But let's speak about today, the first stage. This started as soon as the Prophet received the revelation. 
the fa- this stage started. When you know, as we spoke about last last time, that when he was in the in in Cave Hira, um, he 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 received the revelation and he knew from that moment that he was a messenger of Allah. Subhanahu Obviously, he was frightened. He was he was scared about what had happened, but soon he realized that he was and he has been chosen as uh, the messenger of Allah and to the whole of mankind, not just his own community, but for mankind till the end of times. So this is where it started. And subhanAllah, as we spoke about last time, the, the, the words that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him was that Ya Yuhal Muddathir Kumfa Andir, arise and warn. All you who is enveloped in a garment, arise and warn. And what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Messenger Sallam that is there's no more room for comfort. There's no more room for rest. And um, I looked at the tafsir of this um, ayah that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Messenger Sallam that all you who is enveloped in a garment or wrapped in a garment wrapped in clothing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to highlight is that there's no more comfort because if you think about it it's, it's, a, it's a visual uh, sign towards a symbol towards that Allah is saying that there's no more time for you to be in this comfort with your wife in terms of having this clothing around you this garment around you now is the time for action so no more of this being wrapped in a garment move and Arise and warn. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Messenger as well as telling us that we need to ensure that now that we have Islam, we have been blessed with Islam, we need to take it to the rest of mankind and follow and continue this mission of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, as I said, the Messenger started off with calling to those he could trust the most. He started calling to his first, to his family. Then he went to his friends. Then he went to those who he knew had the characteristics to accept Islam and he, he went to educate them and teach them about Islam, the fundamentals of Islam to establish this core group of Muslims and when we say private, you know when we say that this call was a private stage we don't mean secret like I, I mentioned, it's not, it's not that the Quraysh didn't know what this was the Quraysh knew that there was this new religion or this new deen that the Messenger was calling to this wasn't the thing that was private. What was private was the organization in the background. They didn't know what was happening in Darul Arkham, in the house of Arkham, where the Messenger was, you know, gathering the, the Muslims, the early Muslims, and you know, teaching them about Islam, you know, ensuring that this aqidah of Islam was being embedded within them. They had no idea of this. And also the fact that the Messenger was privately calling those individuals to Islam, those he could trust. This is what we mean by the private phase. And the when the Messenger Sallallahu when when we when we talk about the second phase, when he when he brought out Islam into society, it didn't come as a surprise. They knew about it. They knew that there's this this message um, of Islam. However, what did come as a surprise was the fact that all this groundwork had been done. That there was this core group of Muslims, and that they had all embraced Islam with the Messenger Sallallahu and had. They had this, you know, embedded within them. This what is what came as a surprise. So when we say private, it was the organization that was private, and the fact that the Messenger was calling and targeting certain people. This is the fact. This is the uh, what we mean by when we say the private call. So who were the first to believe? You know, as I said, the Messenger of um, first and foremost, he called his family. So we know the first believer in Islam is Khadija, his wife. And subhanAllah, you know, he went back to his wife. He didn't go to anyone else. He, he had this trust in Khadija. 
this um, reliance on Khadija that not only will she believe him, but also she will support him emotionally and financially and military, you know, physically in terms of the, the support system she had with her, her, her family and, and the fact that uh, she knew people like Waraka ibn Nawfal. You know, that, that gave that comfort and um, you know, assurance to the Messenger in his wife. And subhanAllah, you know, just touching upon uh, Khadija, uh, may Allah ple- be pleased with her, radiyallahu anha. You know, the, she was not only the first to believe, but she had a high status even with Allah, um, in the sense that even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, gave salam to her through Jibreel, alayhi salam. And the fact that the Messenger, sallam, you know, he, even after the death of, the, of, of Khadija, he still held her in such high regard. SubhanAllah, there was a situation where Aisha, um, you know, the, the, the Messenger sallam, was speaking about Khadija, and Aisha became a bit jealous. And to paraphrase, she said, you know, why are you speaking about her all the time? You know, she, this, she was old. Um, hasn't Allah, you know, blessed you with someone, or, you know, wives who are better? SubhanAllah, you know, she just said this because she, she became a bit jealous that every time the Messenger would speak about her and praise her and always speak about Khadija, you know, in high regard. And SubhanAllah, the Messenger when he heard this, became very angry. He became very red and uh, angry at Aisha and said that, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not blessed, with, blessed me with anyone better. Because it was Khadija, the one that believed me when no one else believed me. And she was the one that, um, you know, supported me in terms of the da'wah. And she was the one who gave me children. Because as we know, only Khadija gave children to our, our beloved messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So straight away he, you know, he rebuted the Aisha. And Aisha, you know, kept quiet. And never again after this day did she ever, you know, raise any concerns about Khadija because she realized that the status that Khadija had uh, in, in, in the eyes of uh, the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, you know, she was a great, great woman and, and no wonder she was from the, the, the best four women of the world. So she was the first to accept Islam straight away and, and the Messenger Sallallahu had that support in her. And, and after that, um, the first child to accept Islam was none other than Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu he um, was living with the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam um, because what what happened is that uh, the uncle of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam abu talib he was quite a poor man so in his when he was poor he couldn't really support his whole family so muhammad sallallahu agreed to take ali while he was, while he was a child he was only 10 years old when uh, he when muhammad sallam was made a prophet and he took him under his own care and he became like his son in the sense that he was living amongst him, you know, he was taking care of Ali. So Ali naturally um, was given da'wah and, and accepted Islam straight away. Um, likewise, Zayd ibn Haritha, who was uh, the, the slave and the freed slave of the Prophet ﷺ, he also accepted Islam. And subhanAllah, it really shows how, you know, this Islam wasn't for just, um, you know, the, 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 the people who had a certain status or a certain tribe. It was for everyone, you know, literally everyone. Muhammad was ensuring that they had the access to Islam and he was bringing, giving da'wah to, to anyone that was willing to accept it. Um, and naturally the daughters of the Prophet also um, had embraced Islam at an early age and they were the first kind of family to embrace Islam. Within this, his close friend, obviously, Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr, subhanAllah, you know, I was reading about this. Um, Abu Bakr was the only one, as the Messenger said, is... Every single person 
I invited hesitated except for Abu Bakr. And what the Messenger is really saying is that you know every person, they may have accepted Islam, but there was a slight hesitance when they heard. You know, they may have asked a few questions, they may have hesitated a little bit. Whereas Abu Bakr, as Siddiq, you know, this name that he gained, uh, this title, as Siddiq, the truthful, he accepted Islam without you know hesitating at all. And that is why he has this level, and that, that is why he's known as a Siddiq. And we will speak about it further, you know, the example of Isra al Mi'raj. When this occurred, Abu Bakr was instantly accepted. If the Messenger said it, I believe him. Because I believe that revelation descends upon him. So, you know, Isra al Mi'raj is nothing. And this is why he carried that status of being the truthful. And subhanAllah, if through Abu Bakr, many more Muslims embraced Islam. You know, whether it be Uthman ibn Affan, uh, whether it be uh, Sa'd ibn Abu Waqqas, um, many, many, you know, there were, there were youngsters, there were the, the more, you know, elderly, the more that, the, the, those from high status, those from lower status, many, many at the hands of Abu Bakr accepted Islam. And that's because Abu Bakr had that status amongst them. He was from, uh, the, you know, the, the, the high classes of Quraysh and he had that trust uh, from the people. He, you know, everyone knew him to be a kind and trustworthy man. So he was able to pierce their hearts and, and enter Islam into many of these people through him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, bless them with Islam. So one of the other things to really touch on is that with um, these early Muslims, there are some Sira books that, you know, they, they make the claim that only the majority of the people that accepted Islam were the poor and the weak. As though, you know, they, you know, they, they were the bulk of the Muslims from the early uh, and you, you, even um, some of the Orientalists use this to attack uh, the Messenger and Islam in that they're saying that only you know, those that had nothing to lose, they accepted Islam. Those who were more from the higher uh, you know, of society, uh, they didn't accept, accept Islam. And this is so far from the truth. Because if you look at the evidence and look at what the reality of what actually happened, it was a mix. Of, of the around thir- uh, 40 people, that embraced Islam in the early days, only 13 were from the lower classes and the, and the lower um, parts of society or the poor or slaves. Not that they didn't accept Islam, it's not to say that it was only their upper echelon society, but however, to claim that only the poor and only the weak accepted Islam is incorrect and it is far from what the evidences suggest. The fact that Abu Bakr was, you know, from a high class rich family, the fact that uh, uh, Uthman ibn Affan, he was one of, from one of the richest families. You know, many of the high, uh, you know, higher class and higher uh, status families, people from the, the children and the, and the youth from these families, they accepted Islam. So it would be incorrect to claim this. And subhanAllah, one other amazing thing with those who accepted Islam, it wasn't as though one tribe accepted Islam. It wasn't just one tribe from the Quraysh. There were people from every single tribe that had accepted Islam. because And what's amazing about this is that if it was just one tribe, then the reality is that all the other tribes would have basically ganged up on this tribe. And they would have made it a nationalistic thing. that This tribe has accepted Islam, you know, you know and, and the fact that they, you know, they're trying to seek authority through this. And, you know, because of our own tribes and we want to be, you know, have authority over them, we can destroy this tribe. But the, the difficulty for those who had hatred for Islam is the fact that even their own sons, their own family members, 
had accepted Islam. So this wasn't a tribal thing. Islam had embraced, been embraced by the rich, the poor, the slaves, the freemen. The, you know, every single tribe had elements of Islam within it. So it made it very difficult to now attack those who had, who had accepted Islam because they were from all of these uh, you know, backgrounds. SubhanAllah. The other thing that is really, um, you know, you can really highlight from these early Muslims is that there's a massive emphasis on the youth. You know, of those 40 people that had embraced Islam, many of them, you know, you could even argue the majority, were, you, were from the youth, meaning they were younger, in, in your, you know, younger than 40, you could argue. And many from even younger than that, in, in your really um, teenage to 20s. Um, for example, you had uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, as I said, he was 10 years old. You had uh, Zubair ibn Awam, Talha ibn Ubaidullah, Al-Arkam, who we'll speak about even further in, in the next episode, that the fact that his house was used as the centre of education and learning in Islam. These, these um, Sahaba, they were from between 8 and 15 years old. When I say youth, they were children. You know, we would consider these ages to be children. And subhanAllah, what were they accepting? They weren't accepting anything. They were accepting the truth, yes, Islam. But they were accepting something that would cause a storm in their families. It wasn't easy for them to accept Islam because it was absolutely against what was the current world order. What was the current order within Quraysh? So it wasn't an easy task. However, they accepted Islam. They had this you know, energy. They had this confidence that they knew it was the truth and they were willing to do anything to be able to you know, you know, stand up for the truth. And subhanAllah, you know, if we take our situation today as an example, that you know, many of us youth, um, you know, we're doing our own thing. Um, there's a you know the society today really highlights the uh, youthfulness and everyone wants to stay young, no one wants to get old, but there's a you know especially in Western society there's this emphasis on you know having fun, enjoying our time, you know living while we can and doing all the things we can, you know trying to make money, all of this emphasis, but there's not much emphasis on Islam, the fact that changing the status quo, but in history and the early days of Islam even historic Islam after, after the Muslim's time, the youth were those who brought about change. It was from the youth that change occurred. And we need to take this upon ourselves that if this is the way that change occurs through the youth, as we had here, and as we had in many other examples, whether it be Tariq ibn Ziyad, who was only around in his 20s when he you know, took Islam to Spain, whether it be, whether it be Muhammad bin Qasim, who was uh, the, the, the reported to say that he was 17 years old when he took Islam to Sindh. SubhanAllah, these children, you could argue, these youth had this level of you know, confidence, this bravery to take Islam to the rest of mankind. You know, what does that say about us? What do we need to do? We need to you know, learn and study about Islam and the seerah so that, again, we can take upon this kind of role. And these, they should be our role models, not these footballers, not these actors or whoever it may be. Our role models need to be these great heroes and legends in Islam. And we need to read about them, understand what they did, what made them so great. So the Messenger told us, and we know from a, a famous hadith where he said, the person who seeks knowledge while he is in his youth is similar to the act of inscribing something upon a rock. Right? And the person who seeks knowledge while he is old is similar to 
inscribing something on water. And what is that analogy? What he's trying to say is that in your youth, when you have time, when, when there's every other excuse to do something else, when you start seeking knowledge in that age, firstly you're a sponge, so you can hold that knowledge. And secondly, because you've started at such a young age, you gain that experience quicker as well, that when you seek knowledge when you're young, it becomes solid, solidified, like it's a rock. But if you waited till you were 50, 60, or whatever it may be, and started to seek knowledge then, Firstly, our memory obviously goes a bit you know, less and we find it more difficult to learn and hold on to knowledge. And the, secondly, it's a bit too late to be able to you know, kind of use that knowledge to you know, act and make that change happen. Because as we know, as I've said, that change occurs through the youth. And we need to take, you know, take upon these hadith and reflect upon them and understand what was the Master Salaam telling us. He's telling us that in your youth, that is when we should have the most vigour for Islam and in order to bring about victory for Islam. You know, we, you know the, the fact that our role models today, we need to learn, as I said, learn about these. Ibn Masood, for example, amazing example. He was, you know, he was one of the weak within society. And he was, in, in a Quraysh society, he was just considered nobody. But the status Allah put him, one on one occasion where um, he climbed a, a tree to get, to get something from, from the tree, and the Sahaba saw his ankles, and they were very thin. You know, he's a skinny, skinny man. And they were very, very thin and, and they started laughing. And Muslim saw them laughing. And he asked, why are you laughing? Are you laughing at the shins of Ibn Masood? And he said, verily, the shins of Ibn Masood on Yawm Al-Qiyamah will be heavier than the mountain of Uhud. Subhanallah. And why he's saying is that physically, yes, they may be thin. But what he has done with these thins... What he has done with his action is so weighty that it will be heavier than the mountain of Uhud. Subhanallah. So, to conclude, you know, we need to understand that this is the time now to make that change. This is the time to now study. Understand these three clear steps of the, the, the stages of the Prophet's mission. Understand it in detail. Because I've said that we are in this dire need today. And, you know, this is the only method that we can follow. Every other way is futile and every other way would be illegitimate and un-Islamic. Only the messenger's mission and the messenger's method is the right way and we need to be able to learn and understand it and implement it. The other thing that we spoke about is that you know these steps can be followed today. We have that physical capability to understand and follow it today. It, it wasn't a miracle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't just kind of grant victory and it happened like that. So the fact that we can follow it today, we need to take it upon ourselves to learn and understand these steps. And the, in terms of the first phase, you know, ensuring that we have those fundamentals, the Akida, and understanding that this is how having that fundamental kind of knowledge in Islam gave that, those youth that confidence, gave those early Muslims that confidence to go out into society and challenge and come up against harsh you know, actions whether it be kind of physical torture, but they still held strong and you know, were able to do it because they had that fundamental embedded in them. And next, we will, next week we will speak about what the Messiah actually did in Dar al-Arqam to establish this within the early Muslims, this core group of Sahaba. So inshallah, I pray that you've benefited from today's session and please share with others on podcasts, on YouTube and all platforms. Jazakallah khairan, aquli quli hadha. 
واستغفر الله لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين فاستغفره إنه هو الغفور الرحيم